I think that there is in kind of mass cultural phenomenon like that, there is what Durkheim called collective effervescence, right? The sort of feeling, a collective experience that evokes a kind of feeling that we share. And that can be really powerful, but it can also be ephemeral, I think, if it's not connected to the actual building of relationships and communities. And so what I'm looking for are experiences of collective effervescence, but rooted in this sort of responsibility taking, the kind of holding one another accountable and also seeing oneself as a co-author of a community and a set of practices that we share. Hello, Reviving Virtue listeners. Today, we are honored to have on the show Dr. Molly Farnith, an associate professor in the religion department at Haverford College, whose research and teaching focuses on American and European religious thought with particular attention to religion and politics, ethics, rituals, and feminist and gender studies in religion. She is interested in the relationship between religious diversity and democracy and the ways that members of diverse communities confront ethical conflicts and forge solidarity across religious and other differences, which I might add is a central focus of this podcast. Today, we're going to discuss Dr. Fana's book, The Politics of Ritual, which I recently completed and found incredibly engaging and enlightening. I'm also hoping that we will get a chance to talk about her first book, Hegel's Social Ethics, Religion, Conflict, and Rituals of Reconciliation, which I also enthusiastically read. So without further ado, Molly, it's an honor to have you on Reviving Virtue. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I want to start off, if we can, by setting the scene. So what brought you to this line of research and why you find the topic of uncovering ways for diverse communities to forge solidarities across disparate belief systems so important? Yeah, so my my interest in the study of religion has always been connected to the role of religion in political life. And initially, that was just sort of a fascination with the fact that the same religious tradition could be on both sides of some contentious political issue, how it could be that there could be conservative and progressive religious movements within traditions vying sort of against one another. But as I thought more about those issues and my interests developed, what I came to be interested in had to do more with how it was that people across different religious traditions came to find enough commonality to work together in building communities and struggling together for justice. So how is it that interreligious coalitions are formed and sustained, given that it seems like the differences among these traditions on some of the most important matters are really significant, right? Different ideas about what human beings are like and what the cosmos is like and uh, how we should think about good and evil, right? So really high stakes differences and yet really important historical movements for social change, for social justice, came out of coalitional work among people of different traditions. So I became really fascinated in that, both um, sort of these moments in history where we see in American history the success of the movement for abolition or the success of the civil rights struggle, depending on folks of different traditions working together across lines of religious and racial difference, and also in our current politics. How is it that despite the many differences that divide us, we might find ways of coping with conflicts and still creating coalitions or building communities together. Yeah, that's the, why I started this podcast, what you just elicited there. It's how do these different worldviews, these different almost like realities that people are living within, why or how can we get them talking to each other in a way and coming to some sort of common understanding and mutual respect with each other? So I read The Politics of Ritual first, and then I went out and bought your second book, your first book, excuse me, uh, Hegel's Social Ethics, Religion, Conflict, and Rituals of Reconciliation. And on the very last page of that book, you relay a very remarkable scene 
which is a scene you lead off with in the politics of ritual. So I was kind of funny. Not, I mean, funny. Yeah, I was like, because I got to the end of it. And I'm like, wait, this was the beginning of the book that kind of got me into your whole world here. So I want I was hoping that you can describe this scene and why this scene is so important to you and your work. Yeah. So it was in December of, of 2014. This was the early days of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it was announced in New York that the officer, the police officer who had killed Eric Garner, placing him in a stranglehold, wasn't going to be indicted for the death of Eric Garner. And it set off protests around the country and certainly in New York City. And one of these protests took place on the Upper West Side of Manhattan um, and involved a group of Jewish protesters who stood in the street blocking traffic and recited the Mourner's Kaddish together. So the Mourner's Kaddish is a prayer that is traditionally recited on the death of loved ones, particularly parents and siblings, so very close kin. And it's part of the traditional mourning rituals within the Jewish tradition. It's considered to be an obligation to say this prayer for kin. So the idea that people would connect and gather to recite this prayer for someone who wasn't Jewish, who wasn't kin, who wasn't personally known by most of the people who were assembled there, I think struck many people as surprising, strange. Some, In some cases, people found this offensive, right? This is a prayer that, that Jews say for their family members. It isn't a prayer to be said for people who aren't a part of this community. And so I started to think about what was happening there. And I was really dissatisfied with most of the kind of pat answers. It seemed to me this wasn't just political theater. It wasn't just people saying, like, we oppose this kind of thing in some other kind of bodily form, right? It, there was really interesting and important ethical and political work happening there. Um, so this protest took place around the time that I finished writing the Hegel book. And I was just moved by it and puzzled by it and and thought that there was something in it that was connected to ideas I was thinking through in that book about how we create ethical community together. But it was clear I needed to think more about it. So, so that really launched the second project on the politics of ritual, where I'm trying to think more explicitly about, okay, what is the ethical content of this? What does it mean to do this act, which is normally done in private spaces and Jewish spaces in a public setting on a city street um, for a fellow citizen, but not a member of one's religious tradition? Um, and so that was the genesis of this project. Yeah. And so you get into that. And, and right in the first chapter, you outline what rituals are. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was hoping you could explain to our audience, what are rituals? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to make a kind of essentialist term ab about what okay. rituals are for all time. The way that I use the term, the way that I think is useful for thinking about these kinds of questions about their ethical and, and political import is to think of rituals as a kind of social practice, a sort of species of social practice. So they are complex activities, sort of sequences of events, of, of actions that mm -hmm. are shared by the members of a group. So they're social, they're held in common, and they engage the norms of that group. So when I'm talking about ritual, I'm not talking about like what people might say is like, this is my morning ritual, right? My kind of, I get up and I make my coffee in this particular way and I right. sit on the porch and it, that's a kind of routine, I would say, but mm -hmm. not the sort of social practice that I'm thinking of where you have a group of people who all care about what the ritual is and what it expresses or enacts and getting it right. So for me, rituals have this social aspect. And what's important about that is that they engage social norms in really mm -hmm. complicated ways. They enact them, they express them, they in some cases transform them because people are enacting these things together, holding one another to account for getting the practice right or not over time. In a way, it creates a field of responsibility in a way, right? So by performing a certain 
you could say set of words or a set of actions, you are then enacting, as you say, something into reality, like something that's internal then becomes public, right? And then that publicness is then also a responsibility you're creating for others and your responsibility to others and their responsibility to, to you because they either accept that or they could also reject that. And I, and so this gets to what I had put here in my notes that you bring in something, this concept of distribution of, of goods, right? And there's idea of an internal and external boundaries. This is something, you know, this is outside of my notes I made here, but it's something I've been wrestling with in my head right now. When we think of uh, private individuals and then of the public, and we seem to live in like since the 1980s or mid 70s, a neoliberal project, this seems to be this separating of the public and the private and where rituals are seen as a private sphere. And so this scene that you mentioned at the beginning, they brought this into the public. You know, there was a public death of, of a member of our community. He was killed by a public officer. And then something that is private was thought of as private rituals was brought into the public. I really found this idea of external internal boundaries as really, it was an aha moment when I read your book and this idea of distribution of goods, because within these rituals is an idea of who gets to benefit from being part of this community that performs and enacts these rituals. So Instead of me keep blabbing on here, I was hoping maybe you could expand on that a bit and explain the contours of this internal and external boundaries that, that rituals enact. There's so much in what you just said that I want to uh, <laughs> that I want to talk about. So, but, but first, before I get to the boundaries piece, um, can yeah. I respond for a minute to what you were saying about the public and private? Because I do think that's really interesting and Im important to the framework that the project is working in. That you know, there there was a time before the rise of the modern nation state in in pre-modern and, and early modern period where religion was not so separable from the public or the political sphere. And this was true not only for Catholicism, but also for Judaism, for Islam, for many religious traditions. The idea that, say, Jewish law should only concern private and family matters as opposed to concerning all of communal life, but really that comes about with the rise of the modern nation state, the creation of political entities that have a kind of quote unquote secular governing structure under which people of different traditions and faiths all fall, right? So, so religion is then separated off from the public, from the political and cordoned off to these private spheres. But that's always been a kind of uncomfortable division, right? It's always, it's never been so easy to separate these things or to cordon religion off from all the other spheres of life in, in which people live their lives. So the idea of citizens acting both as citizens and as deeply imbued with a kind of religious sensibility, I think does often strike us as like, well, that's odd, right? This seems like this kind of compromise that we've come to where like religion's okay, diversity's okay, as long as it sticks to the private sphere. That's never it's never been so clear cut. And I think that these kinds of public enactments of ritual make that make the complicatedness, the messiness of those relationships clear. In relation to what you were saying about boundary work, the boundary work that that rituals do, rituals oftentimes show up around the edges of communities, regulating who's in and who's out. When I say they do boundary work, what I mean is they are oftentimes employed to mark the movement of someone from non-member to member or from member to non-member. And they oftentimes mark the movement of people within groups from one social status or social role to another. So 
an obvious example in the case of the sort of external boundaries would be conversion, right? In a religious tradition, a conversion ritual is used to enact the transition from being not a member of a group to being a member of a group. And one thing that I think is interesting and important about that is that what the ritual is doing in part there is changing the distribution of goods within the community and at the boundaries of community. So if what it is to be a member of this group or this community is to have access to certain kinds of power, certain kinds of status, certain rights or responsibilities, then what the ritual is doing is moving you from a person who doesn't have those rights and responsibilities to having them. It distributes or marks the distribution of goods in an important way. When a person undertakes, say, an ordination ceremony, right, taking on the status of clergy within a particular tradition, what's being distributed in the ritual, right, the ritual marks the transition from non-clergy to clergy, but what's being distributed is, is authority, They didn't have the authority that goes with that social role, and then they're recognized as having the authority. So rituals are implicated in the distribution of goods, particularly non-tangible goods like authority or power, status of different kinds, and they mark these moments of transition in part by giving people access to goods that they didn't have. And so one thing that can be important as we think about the politics or political implications of ritual is that denying someone access to a certain kind of ritual, saying you aren't the kind of person that can do Mm -hmm. this thing, is a matter of distributive justice, right? Mm -hmm. If you can't enact the ritual, you can't access the goods that go with entering a certain status. So fights about, say, whether there should be coming-of-age ceremonies for girls as well as boys or or non-binary children, or whether there should be wedding ceremonies to mark non-heterosexual unions, right? Those are in part questions about how goods get distributed, right? The ritual, in fact, does part of the work of Mm -hmm. making those goods a certain kind of social recognition available to people. So I come from a left perspective and I I feel like uh, another reason I started this podcast is because there's not much talk from a left perspective when it comes to rituals and religion and virtues and ethics. And I feel like there's a fear from people on the left because they might see rituals as a uh, a power move maybe to exclude because you talked about distributive justice there but for me i feel like there's a, a lack of vocabulary from the left mm-hmm. to articulate the importance of virtues and rituals in our lives do you have anything to say on on this little rumination i'm having right now yeah yeah so i think that right there is this view that like rituals tend to be gatekeepers right when we're talking about right. the boundaries or sort of transitions they act as gatekeepers keeping the wrong people, quote unquote, out of certain roles. So I think the impulse that they enforce the status quo in this way, they distribute power and authority, sure, but like only to the powerful. And so I think that on the left in particular, there has long been a tendency to say, well, like, just do away with the rituals. We don't need these gatekeepers. If you do away with the rituals, then you open up the gates for people to access other forms of power and authority and status and, and things that may not have been available to them when these rituals were policing the boundaries. And I think that's I, I think that's a bad move for a couple of reasons. One is that I think that it is true that oftentimes rituals do reinforce already existing social arrangements, but not always. And that's in part because rituals are social practices that require people's recognition, the recognition of others in the group, in order to work, right? In order to be effective, 
in distributing goods in this way or to be effective in granting authority, say, other people in the group have to recognize them. And sometimes people can recognize a ritual as having worked even when maybe it shouldn't have or it works in a new way, in a different way. Mm -hmm. So there are cases where Judith Butler has this great phrase, liturgy in its futural form. There are cases where liturgy or ritual is enacted in, let's say, an idiosyncratic way or mm -hmm. the wrong people are doing it. Again, quote unquote, wrong people, people who aren't the ones typically authorized to engage in the ritual, enact it. And, mm -hmm. and something transformative can happen, right? People yes. can suddenly see that there's something beautiful or moving or powerful or right about that enactment of the ritual. They can recognize it as having worked and as having distributed the goods in the way that it typically does, but now with these new effects. So sometimes yeah. these kinds of transformative enactments of ritual can actually start to reshape mm -hmm. social structures, social norms, the relationships within a group. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe to the left, there's a, a little bit of a poverty there because lacking this articulation of social relations because of the lack of the rituals. And I think that's like the, we started your book with the enactment of the ritual out on the street. And that was just so powerful. Uh, and then this is reminding me of something. This again, I didn't prepare this, but this was so in when I was a child, I grew up on Long Island in New York. And this was during the 80s and 90s. And during and this was when there was the, the gay movement. They wanted to be in the St. Patrick Day's Parade in New York City. And there was a huge debate going on about this. And my father wrote an op-ed that was printed in the New York Newsday, where he said, it's incoherent for gay people to want to march in the parade for the Catholic Church because they don't recognize gay people as having rights or being valid. So he's like, why would they want to be part of this? Now, at the time, that made sense to me. But you know, here I am now, 30 years later, seeing a poverty in, in a certain way and finding rituals and virtues as something that needs to be rearticulated from a left perspective. And where my father was wrong, I believe, because by them being part of that ritualized parade, you know, this, this broadened the scope of understanding and relationship and bringing those different worlds together mm -hmm. in this ritualized moment of the St. Patrick's Day parade in New York City. Things are much different in 2023 than in like 1989. You know, what you just said there just reminded me of this moment of American history. You yeah, know. I think that in, in ritual terms, the, the sort of the bid for inclusion or for access to a ritual can be a call for a kind of recognitive uh, recognition, a call mm -hmm. for recognition and a call for distributive justice, right? So those things are, are connected, but rituals can, can sometimes provoke that recognition in ways that other modes of argument or attempts at persuasion can't. Yes. So, so I talk in the book about the ordination of the Philadelphia 11. So this is a group mm -hmm. of 11 women within the Episcopal Church at a, at a moment in time when women were not yet authorized by the church to become priests. And through a series of moves and ultimately an ordination ceremony that kind of went rogue, they came to be ordained. So they participated in an ordination ceremony that was conducted by a group of bishops who were acting uh, against the advisement of the governing bodies of the church. And they went through the ordination process. Again, at this moment when it was not authorized, the, the powers that be in, in the Episcopal church didn't recognize them as priests. Mm -hmm. And yet a sort of overwhelming number of lay people did. And so these women then were able to conduct services and to administer the sacraments as priests. Their ordination 
was recognized. And for some people, and really notably Polly Murray, the, the civil rights activist, um, who later came to be ordained in the Episcopal Church herself, Polly Murray remembers attending this ordination ceremony, being unsure of whether it was legitimate or not initially, and being moved by the sight of these women at the altar with the with uh, receiving the blessing of ordination and and coming to recognize through the ritual itself that it was right that it was legitimate that these women were priests and would be priests that event provoked ultimately a series of events that led to the episcopal church recognizing women's ordination belatedly right they already were priests at that point that took a quite a bit amount of courage to to enact that. So if we go quickly to Hegel's social ethics, you have a phrase in there or the term, the practice of recognition and reconciliation. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that in in this context that you just shared about an Episcopal church. How would that recognition and reconciliation work in this story here? The way that I use those terms in the Hegel book or the way that I think Hegel uses them, this is the 19th century German philosopher (laughs) who's thinking about how conflicts arise in different kinds of communities and how they can be coped with. And he thinks that ultimately what we need is to recognize one another as both authoritative and accountable to one another. So each of us has authority to make claims, to take action in the world, but also to be held accountable by those with whom we act and to whom we make commitments, right? So this is the kind of recognition that he is talking about. And and I think we can build on that idea of recognition to think about what a justly structured community would look like. What would it look like to to each of us have that kind of authority and exercise authority in the communities we're a part of, but also recognize that we're accountable to others in that. So we're co-authors of the communities that we're a part of, and we're accountable co-authors. Conflicts inevitably arise. And so then what's necessary is a kind of reconciliation, a kind of a, a practice and a process of, of holding accountable, recognizing our fallibility and the fallibility of others, and then, and then choosing to move forward together, right? So when I think about that structure in relationship to rituals, I think that rituals are often one of the places, because that, that work is hard work, that sort of work of, of counting oneself as fallible uh, and recognizing oneself as part of a community where we can be held accountable. Rituals are one place where that happens. So certainly practices of confession and forgiveness within the Christian church and Catholicism and Lutheranism in particular, those are the ones that, that Hegel has in mind. In Judaism, we are right now in the days of awe, the high holy days, where one of the practices is a practice of kind of communal confession of ways that we've fallen short and also seeking forgiveness from one another. So, so I do I think that rituals are can give structure sometimes to that work of conflict and reconciliation within communities where conflicts are, are always bubbling up, right? And so thinking about how do we better structure our communities? How do we create processes and practices where we can make these kinds of acknowledgments to one another and move forward? I think, I think ritual one place where that happens. I wanna, the reason I really love the, the Hegel book too, and this idea of recognition and reconciliation, to me, that's the democratic ethos. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of humility that's central to this, right? You're hu- and then there's the idea that I'm going to recognize what you're saying and I'm, you're going to reciprocate that. And then we're going to come to this new synthesis, right, of, of an understanding that hopefully is higher and more respecting 
and then we'll get to our next problem and then but then we can work on that why do you think we're we're having such a hard time doing that right now in 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 our democracy here in america so i think that the structure of the conflicts that we're having it's a kind of culture war style conflict where each side refuses that the other side has any authority and refuses that it has any accountability, right? Yes, it yeah. feels like, and, and, and this is self-perpetuating, it begins to feel like the stakes are so high that we can't allow the other side to even make a claim. We can't recognize the other side as co-equal to us, as having authority. Mm. And we can't recognize ourselves as being accountable to them, right? It would like open the door to a kind of domination we don't want to be dominated by the other. So we're just going to sort of assert ourselves instead and ignore them and try to impose our will on them. Now, when you have this style of conflict, like I said, it's self-perpetuating. Neither side is going to let the other get a foot in the door, right? Because to do so would be to invite being eliminated from the conversation or dominated, right? The, the stakes feel too high. I don't know entirely how we get away from that. I don't know how we lower the pressure. But I, I do know that when conflicts continue to be structured in that way, mm -hmm. they just become permanent impasses with no way out except for one side to impose its will on the other and that to be a kind of permanent back and forth, the attempt to impose will on the other. The kinds of conflicts that we need, the structure that they need to have does have this other, we're going to disagree but we also are going to recognize a kind of humility, a kind of fallibility that we are in this thing together mm -hmm. and we need to find ways to move forward together without domination, without trying to eliminate the other's perspective or taking their wins as fundamentally our losses, right? The sort of the hardening of these perspectives, I think. The zero sum. That's exactly. the zero sum mindset. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you for that. I really enjoyed your answer there. And the idea of what to do exactly to lower that pressure is, I actually do think virtues, habits, and rituals is a, is a key to this. And, and which leads me to my next question I have for you, which is then in your book, you move into the realm of habits, virtues, and freedom. And I really enjoyed this chapter. It's incredibly rich and dense with an incredible amount of information that is really helpful. And uh, you mentioned that rituals cultivate habits and desires that make possible forms of action. And I find this to be an accurate view of habits. And I think I'm reading a lot of John Dewey lately, and he will articulate habits in that way as a fundamental form to inform action. And I see habits as increasing capacity for action and the idea around right and appropriate action. So can you flesh out your ideas a little bit from this chapter? Yeah. yeah. So I think this is kind of connected to the worry about rituals reinforcing the status quo. I think there's this idea sometimes that Rituals, because they're repeated, become habits and then become mere rote behavior, unthinking, and not suited to the kind of citizens or free people that we might want to be or become, right? If rituals become habits, if habits make us these sorts of unthinking kind of creatures, if they impose habits and, and dispositions on us, then how can they be compatible with? the sort of free acting, free choosing kinds of people we probably desire to be. I think that, that it is true that rituals can become habitual and that they can create habits and dispositions and virtues, but that rather than thinking of those as mere rote behavior or as a kind of constraint on our ability to think and act in ways suitable to 
democratic and free citizens, I think we can think of them as the precursor or the prerequisite for creative action, for expressive action. So the analogy that I use in the book is just as a poet learns the conventions of a language before playing with those conventions, transforming them, expressing new thoughts and new new idioms, they have to master a certain set of conventions. And just as the jazz musician has to master a sort of musical vocabulary before they can improvise, I think that rituals can create, it's a kind of education and cultivation of the ability to move within a set of conventions that then makes possible a kind of expressive and creative freedom, including freedom within rituals themselves. So many of the examples that I use in the book are cases where rituals are being transformed, right? People are drawing on a history of past ways of enacting the ritual in order to do something new with it, to allow new people into the ritual, to use the ritual to ex express some new set of ideas or ideals. So, so that's one piece of it, right? I think that rituals can create the basis for what I call expressive freedom. I think that rituals can also cultivate the habits and dispositions appropriate to freedom-loving democratic citizens, even recognizing that what exactly those virtues are or need to be is going to be a matter of debate, right? right? So we won't all agree about exactly what dispositions are suitable for citizens. I think that's part of what the democratic practice is, right? We disagree about these things. But I think that part of what rituals can do, along with other kinds of habits, is create in us certain modes of thinking, of engaging, certain habits, courage, hope, right? Tolerance. Those things can be cultivated through certain kinds of ritual practices in ways that give people sustenance in the face of the kinds of conflicts that we've been talking about. Yeah, I love the the idea of the creativity because my, my former life, I spent 25 years as a touring musician and a session musician, and I got my undergrad in jazz. Uh, but the idea of creating a, a toolbox, right? Tools for your toolbox, right? This is where I see, I actually see rituals, as you just described, the same exact way. It, it allows you to build a vocabulary and also a set of ways that you can act. And you can also expect how other people re will react. This is a, the very important part of like a jazz musician. You're given a framework and you're given the vocabulary, but within that framework and that vocabulary, the way that they are engaged with in community with other musicians is always going to be different. And it's, it's having those habits and those virtues and, and those rituals that you have worked through that give you the capacity for action in the moment, which is really important. And I really love that you brought that up to the creative aspect of it. Cause to me, that's what I saw. And that's why the beautiful part of your book, actually, I really think it is like a, we have the capacity to act creatively and courageously. And a, a big part of that though, too, is the, hum the humility factor and understanding that we don't live in a zero-sum world and that we live in a generative world and that our mutual understanding and this relationship we have with each other, the rituals, virtues, habits, all those things are they're critical for the foundation for our creative actions together that allow us to be to, to go to a higher place, like the Hegelian dialectic in a way. Yeah. yeah, and thinking back to what I was saying earlier about the advent of the modern nation state as being this point where the kind of the secular apparatus of the state and religion become separate and one's public and one's private. So in some ways, what filled the vacuum of public ritual were civic rituals in, in that period of time in the century since. So as 
religious rituals evacuated the public sphere or were, were pushed to the side, you have the growth of kind of patriotic rituals. So civic holidays and the Pledge of Allegiance and certain treatment of the flag and rituals surrounding the treatment of the flag. So all of these things come to, to take some of that space of what public ritual is in order and often, oftentimes quite explicitly to create in people and citizens certain habits and dispositions of patriotism. So the Pledge of Allegiance, for instance, was created at a moment, this is in the uh, late 19th century, where there was a wave of immigration and worries about whether immigrant children were being properly formed as patriotic American citizens. And so the introduction of certain flag rituals and the Pledge of Allegiance in particular in the public schools was intended to cultivate patriotism of a certain kind, right? Understood in a very particular way. So one question I think that we have probably always had as a nation and, and need to continue to think about and talk about is, are these rituals the right ones for cultivating the kinds of habits and dispositions that we need now? What sort of patriotism is the right sort to be cultivating? What sorts of habits of mind, what sorts of character virtues are citizens going to need in order to cope with and flourish in the sort of society that we have today? Yes. We're getting close to end here. I don't want to end it so soon. This is a great discussion, but I got two more ready for you. So the closing chapter of your book is an exploration on expressing beliefs, passions, and solidarity. A big theme I see is the idea of responsibility, which we've been talking about this whole discussion, the confusion of what is private and public, and along with that, the mutual responsibilities imbued in this interdependent relationship. You also explore the notion of emotions informing our actions and the lens through which we perceive actions. It is another rich tapestry you have woven for us here. And can you tease out the ideas in this section for us for like, why is it so important to understand these interlocking relationships that I just mentioned? Yeah. So when we enact rituals in public, oftentimes we're expressing things through our rituals. So we're expressing commitments. We're expressing passions and emotions. We're expressing stances like solidarity. We're expressing our belonging in a group. So there are lots of things that get expressed. And what I mean when I say we express them is that we communicate these things to other people in a way that other people can recognize and, and assume that we're taking responsibility for. So one claim I want to make about ritual is that there are things we take responsibility for. They're not things we do just as rote habit. They're not meaningless. They're actually deeply laden with meaning and with norms. And when we engage them, when we do them publicly, we are publicly taking responsibility for the content of them. So when, when a person engages in mourning rituals, so the mourner's Kaddish, for instance, one thing that they're doing is communicating, expressing publicly their grief in a way that other people can recognize and then treat them appropriately. Right. So right. recognizing that, say, I am grieving my community member, my co-congregant, my friend will then recognize my status as a mourner. Right. So one of the things that's happening when we engage in rituals publicly is we are communicating to others what it is that we are experiencing, what it is that we're committed to, what our status is. And we're calling on them to recognize us as mm -hmm. committed to those things, as engaging in those things, as experiencing those things. So in the Antigone story, for instance, right? Antigone yeah. is barred from engaging in burial rites for her brother. And mm -hmm. it's a kind of injustice, right? Because she's being denied. It's not just you, you're not allowed to do these meaningless or rote acts. She's being denied her status as a mourner, right? Denied her status as someone grieving. 
And her brother's being denied his status as a member of the community, right? He's not being included in the community of people for whom these burial rites are allowed. So there's a kind of injustice there. So the public performance of ritual, particularly in protests, and, and we see mourning rituals showing up in a variety of kinds of protests, these are often claims, public claims, about the status of people who have died, that they are and should be recognized as members of a community, and that those living who are mourning them should be recognized as having lost something deeply important, and that part of what we need to do, ought to do as citizens, is better recognize one another as expressing um, publicly a set of, of emotions that include anger and grief and hope, right? That those things can be um, expressed in rituals in ways that people take responsibility for, that others ought to recognize and then treat in the normative sort of way. Well, so I didn't send this question to you beforehand, but I was wondering, and what I try to ask most of my guests, if I remember, is what do you think people can do in their own lives to try to enact these ideas of rituals and habits and virtues? If you're thinking in the future, like, you know, it's 10 years in the future and we're, it's, 20, it's 2033 and you're looking around, like, what would make you happy to see Americans doing more of? That's a great question. I think I want people to figure out what communities they're a part of already and show up in those communities, right? Be active in them. And I think part of that related to that is seeing what the practices are, the social practices are that people are engaged in and beginning to participate in them, beginning to take responsibility for them along with others. I see this often with my students, with other young folks, and I think it's not isolated to young folks. So few of them are members of groups that are not fully self-selecting. So they're members of friend groups, right? Or they're members of, you know, they, they, they create groups. It's not that they're fully isolated, but they're not joining organizations or institutions that that connect them to people of multiple generations, people who are in, in some ways situated quite differently from them and, and with whom they may disagree about many things. I, I want, uh, in some ways, a revival of some of those kinds of communities. Where can we show up? What things are we already connected to that that implicate us in relationships where we're holding things in common feeling responsible for practices with people who are, in some cases, quite different from us, um, who we didn't necessarily individually choose to be in relationship with, but who we're in relationship with because we share these kinds of goods in common and practices in common. So some of that will be engaging in rituals with people and then taking responsibility for those rituals. And, and, and I think it goes beyond that, too. It's also caring for community in relationship with people who are quite different from us. Yeah, the, the Taylor Swift phenomenon that happened this last summer and spring with people spending incredible sums of money or coming up with the resources so they could go to these concerts. And I believe a big part of that was people wanting to find a place of resonance together with people in community. There's a big absence of that. And I, I mean, this is my own I, theory behind why there was such a huge reaction to her tour. I, I mean, was a former professional musician myself, and I think she's an incredible artist and she's great. But I don't find her any more you know, special than a lot of other great artists. But it seems like she was able to be that focal point to bring people together and that people really wanted that. And 
I was really blown away by just, just like how much of a huge cultural event her tour was. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think I think that there is in, in kind of mass cultural phenomenon like that, there is what Durkheim called collective effervescence, right? Mm. The sort of feeling, a collective experience that evokes a kind of feeling that we share. And that can be really powerful, but it can also be ephemeral, I think, if it's not connected to the actual building of relationships and communities. And so I, I think that what I'm looking for are experiences of collective effervescence, but rooted in the sort of responsibility taking, the kind of holding one another accountable, and also seeing oneself as a co-author of a community and a set of practices that we share. Yes, that was really powerful what you just said there. And I think that's a perfect place to end. So I want to say, Molly, this discussion has been incredibly rewarding and enriching. And I want to thank you for taking the time today out of your busy schedule to come speak to our audience about your book, The Politics of Ritual. I highly recommend everyone listening to this to grab a copy. And uh, we look forward to your next book. And hopefully we can have you back on for another enriching discussion. Thank you so much. This has really been a pleasure.